The book of Micah is a series of three sermons. The prophet begins each of his sermons with the word, hear. Micah chapter 1 verse 2, hear all you peoples, listen, O earth. Micah chapter 3 verse 1, hear now, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. And then the third sermon is in Micah 6 verse 1, hear now what the Lord says. God spoke to his people through the prophet Micah, but here's the question, were they listening? Once there was a man, he was driving down the highway when he saw a real live Indian lying down in the middle of the road. This Native American had his ear on the pavement. The man stopped to investigate. He heard the Indian mumbling, large wheels, wide tires, Ford truck, color green, large dog sitting next to the driver, Alabama license plate traveling at least 80 miles per hour. The onlooker was amazed. He asked, you can get that much detail of what's coming just by listening with your ear to the ground? The Indian answered, not hardly. That's the truck that just ran over me. Well, Micah also had his ear to the ground, or better yet, his ear to the heavens. Micah had faithfully listened to God. And was proclaiming his message. But like the Indian, whether people listened to Micah or not, God's warnings were real. The entire Middle East had already been steamrolled by the equivalent of a truck. The Assyrian army was on the warpath. The Assyrians began their conquest of the Fertile Crescent in the year 745 B.C., And for the next 100 years, every king east of the Euphrates River was living in mortal fear of these Assyrians. By 732 B.C., much of the land bridge between Asia and Africa was under Assyrian control. Philistia had fallen, as did Damascus. The two Hebrew capitals were next, both Samaria and Jerusalem. And God sends Micah to warn his people, turn from your sin or suffer my judgment. In fact, the middle of the 8th century B.C. saw a flurry of prophets trumpeting God's judgment. Jonah and Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah. For 200 years, God had tolerated his people's idolatry, but his patience has an expiration. Unless the people repent, They'll get run over. The prophets had heard from God, but would the Hebrews hear their prophets? Well, the book of Micah begins. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah was sent to both the Hebrew nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital city of Samaria, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Micah prophesied during the reigns of three Judean kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, or from the years 735 B.C. to 700 B.C. Notice here two important points about Micah. 
First, like Amos, Micah was all country. Micah was from Morisheth. It was a farming community 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem. Micah was a hick from the sticks. And yet God sent this man to the big city to confront kings and priests. This prophet had an uncommon courage. And second, the meaning of the name Micah is also the theme of his message. The Hebrew word translated Micah means, who is like Yahweh? And this was the issue that preoccupies this prophet. Micah's intention in this book is to elaborate on God's character. He tells us that God has no peer. The fierceness of his wrath, the lavishness of his love are both without comparison. Who is like him? No one is like our Lord. Well, Micah's first sermon begins with a bang. Hear, all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Notice Micah's prophecy isn't just to Samaria and Jerusalem, but it's to all people. It's to the whole earth. God descends from heaven, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt like wax. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. Now here's the first truth that Micah teaches us. God doesn't always stay in his place. Here we see God coming out of his place. Now, if you serve an idol, you're able to clear off a space on your shelf or on your mantle. You can put that little idol on display, and it'll never move. Idols stay in their place. Or you can keep your idol in your garage, or you can wear it on your finger, or you can deposit it in your bank. You can live your life around an idol. A good idol knows its place. It stays in its place. It doesn't butt in where it's not wanted. It keeps silent. An idol never interferes with our self-centered lives. But not so with the true God. He is the ultimate party crasher. God doesn't stay put. He's the Lord of life. God has dominion over every area of our lives. If you please Him, He'll say so. If you don't please him, he'll let you know. There's one certainty that God will not be ignored. You never know when God is going to rock the boat. He doesn't stay in his place. He invades all of our lives. He wants to change us and transform us and conform us into his will. God could care less about being politically correct. He has no respect for our status quo. Micah sees the Lord. Coming out of his place. He's not content to hide in heaven. He's not content to rule from a comfortable distance. No, God likes to leave the great beyond, the eternal realm, to invade time and space. Understand, God not only exists, he impacts our existence. He is infinitely high, but he is also intimately nigh. God dives in. He gets involved. He intervenes in our lives. Hey, our God 
is a hands-on God. And this is Micah's message to Judah. And this is also what Christmas is about. Barring from the words of Micah, Christmas is God coming out of His place to live in our place. God left His heavenly throne for the womb of a virgin. John 1 verse 14 puts it, The Word was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I like that paraphrase of it. God saw our pain. He sees our plight. So He comes out of His place to be our Savior. And yet Micah also sees God coming out of His place to judge our sin. And when He does, we're told nature bows before Him. In verse 3, we see mountains melt and valleys split. And water pour when God comes out of His place. At Jesus' second coming, He'll return to this earth and He'll punish the wicked. John saw this future event and he wrote in Revelation 16, verse 20, Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Just as Micah sees, when God comes out of His place, planets convulse and mountains vanish. vanish. Who is like our God? He has no rivals. He has no equals. Verse 5 tells us why God is coming out of His place. This is the reason Jesus will return to earth in the last days. Micah explains it. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? See, God is coming out of His place to punish sin. And He intends to judge the capital cities of both Hebrew nations. You see, Samaria was a microcosm of the nation Israel, and Jerusalem was Judah in a nutshell. These capital cities had undue influence on the surrounding villages. And you know, this is how it works in our culture today. Certain cities set the trends for the rest of the country. New York fashion, L.A. style, sort of sets the place, pace for America's heartland. And God judges the cultural centers. He judges those commercial hubs because of their influence and because of what they spread to the rest of the nation. He says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. In other words, he's going to raz Samaria to the ground. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian king, Sargon II, he destroyed the strongholds of Samaria. The city was finished off six centuries later during the Maccabean revolt by that fighting Jewish priest, John Hycranus. The historian Flavius Josephus, he stated, when Hycranus took the city after a year's siege, he was not content with doing that only, but he demolished it entirely, and he brought streams of water to flood it. Nay, he took away the very marks that there had ever been such a city there. How's that for complete devastation? Hycranus completely destroyed ancient Samaria and fulfilled the prophecy of Micah written here. Verse 7 notes the sin of Samaria. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot. 
You see, Samaria's sin was idolatry. And throughout the Scriptures, God considers idolatry to be spiritual infidelity. Samaria was an unfaithful lover. Rather than give her affections to God, she had given them to idols. Have you reserved your affections for God? He goes on, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Notice the sin of the northern kingdom had spread south. Israel's idolatry was now infecting Judah and Jerusalem. And it was because of evil influence that God had come out of his place. In his commentary on the book of Micah, Walter Kaiser, he writes these words. Micah is not a dispassionate observer, steeled against the terrors he predicts. Instead, he is so torn apart by the grief that was to come that he wails like a banshee and howls like a jackal as he goes about naked in deep despair. In ancient times, when life got tough, the prophet of God would appear in the buff. Physical nakedness was a sign of the prophet's grief. God had revealed to Micah the bare facts, the naked truth about the situation. His people had sinned. And Micah was so, so torn up over Israel's transgression that he walked naked among God's people as an expression of his disappointment. In essence, Micah was a microcosm of God's heart. He was revealing and reflecting God's heart to the people. I guess you could call him a Micah-cosm. I mean, you've got to think long and hard to come up with those kind of things. God is never pleased to punish. It grieves Him deeply to have to punish us. He'd rather forgive. He would rather bless. Micah mourns as God mourns over his unrepentant people. And notice too Micah's sad statement in verse 9. This is such a sad statement. He says of Israel, her wounds are incurable. Now how would you like for the great physician to give you that diagnosis? Your wounds are incurable. The great healer to say, well, I'm sorry, but there's nothing else I can do for you. Boy, when God says that, you're in trouble. Samaria is being turned over to hospice. Her sin has taken its toll. There's nothing else that God can do because of her unrepentant heart. Reminds me of the desperate pilot's message to air traffic control Pilot to tower. Pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from land. I'm 600 feet high and I'm running out of fuel. Please instruct. Over. A voice from the control tower replied, Tower to pilot. Tower to pilot. Repeat after me. Our Father which art in heaven. This is Micah's message to the northern kingdom. Man, you're down for the count. Judgment is inevitable. Your wounds are incurable. After the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C., Jerusalem lost its northern buffer between its walls and the Assyrian army. 
Micah knew that there was now nothing standing between the enemy's armies and the gates of his own capital of Jerusalem. Many of the cities in the suburbs around Jerusalem began to fall to the Assyrian army. In fact, there was a mural that was found in the ancient ruins of Nineveh that records the boast of the Assyrian king Sennacherib as he conquested the cities of Judah. The mural is now on display in the London Museum, and this is what it reads. As for, his, as for Hezekiah of Judah, who did not submit to my yoke, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them. I drove out 200,150 200, people. Hezekiah himself, I shut up like a caged bird with Jerusalem, his royal city, and turned back to his disaster any who went out of his city gate. Sennacherib boasts how he had brought down the suburbs around Jerusalem and how he had caged Hezekiah into his own city. And in the next few verses, Micah is going to predict the fall of the same cities that Sennacherib boasted of defeating. Most of the 12 cities he mentions here were within a 10-mile radius of Micah's hometown of Meresheth, south of Jerusalem. And so he begins to describe these cities and their ultimate fall. Verse 10, Tell it now in Gath, Weep not at all, in Beth Arphra roll yourself in the dust. Now Micah was one of the more articulate prophets. He was a very skilled in the use of language. In fact, to capture the people's attention, he often used alliterations and puns. Here he employs a play on words to describe these various judgments, those things that are going to befall these different cities. Gath, the word gath, means to announce. Thus, tell it not in gath could be translated, tell it not in Tailtown. He's using a play on words. Beth Arpha means house of dust. Thus he's writing, weep not at all in Beth Arpha, roll yourself in the dust. It would be like me writing something like, a gust of wind will level Augusta. I worked real hard on this now. You, you can work with me here a little bit. All is not well in Roswell. Beware of sins in Athens. Judgment heads to Buckhead. Lil Burn should turn or burn. Decatur will decay. Norcross needs the cross. Shamley is a sham. Swanee will sing its swan song. Duluth has rejected the truth. Monroe has got to go. Tekoa will blow away. And Stone Mountain takes God for granted. And we could go on and on and on, could we not? You get the point, though. Micah was good with puns when it came to forecasting God's punishment. There you go. And so here it goes. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shafir. Shafir means beauty town. And so he's saying, beauty town is going to be found in naked shame. The inhabitant of Zanon a city which means go forth, does not go out. It does not go forth. 
Beth Ezel, or the house of taking away, mourns, its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Moroth, which means bitter town, pine for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, which means to the steeds or to the horses, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. Now, as Micah is saying that Lachish, you better get ready for war. And here's why. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. In other words, Lachish was the trendy suburb in Jerusalem. All the perversions of the northern kingdom found their way to Lachish. It was sort of the influential district that spread the evil of Samaria. It was the beginning of sin, he says. Verse 14, Therefore you shall give presents to Morishef Gath, the houses of Oxib, which means deception, shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Aksib, or deception, shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marashah, or the conqueror. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam, which means refuge. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair. Because of your precious children, enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. In other words, mourn and weep for all the destruction that is coming upon you. Chapter 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. Here's how thoroughly wicked these people were. They both went to bed and woke up thinking evil thoughts. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Now remember, the land of Israel was considered sacred. For land belonged to God, and he allocated it to his people. In the book of Joshua, each tribe and family was allotted a specific parcel or track to remain in their permanent possession. Even if the property was used to secure a loan, and ended up later being foreclosed on. At the end of seven years, it was returned to its original owners. All these stipulations were in the law of Moses. Due to the connection between God and the land, the sin of land grabbing was a particular affront to God and to, to his purposes. You recall the downfall of King Ahab. It occurred when he cheated Naboth out of his vineyard. In an agrarian society... To steal a person's land was to rob him of his means of supporting his family. And this all upset God. That greedy people would take advantage of the poor and be confiscating their property. And so, therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. In that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the, inherit the heritage of my people, how he has removed it from me. To a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore you will have 
no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. In the ultimate irony, these greedy land grabbers will in the end have their own lands taken from them by the invading armies. You recall what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Who is it that inherits the earth? You remember the the beatitude? Who is it that inherits the earth? The meek, yeah, the meek. Those who put others first are the ones that get exalted in the end. The one who put others first, they're the ones that get the land in the end. Here the greedy land grabbers were trying to take it for themselves, and it's going to be taken from them. Verse 6, do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy. Again, the wicked people in Judah, they were trying to silence godly men like Micah. They didn't want to hear God's truth. And here they refer to Micah's message as prattle. The word actually means drip or drool. They considered Micah's prophecy to be nothing but slobber. You know, it's sad when folks willingly reject God's truth. It's interesting, this Hebrew word prattle is in the plural. Perhaps it's referring not just to Micah, but to all the prophets. The people of Judah had the same disdain for Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. They were close to God's truth. And notice how verse 6 ends. So they shall not prophesy to you, they shall not return insult for insult. Here's God's final judgment on a people. When he withdraws his prophets... And he leaves that people without a voice to warn them. Then you know judgment is coming. Here he says that rather than let his prophets get into a shouting match, returning insult for insult, God is just going to pull the plug. His prophets are going to go silent. When that happens, you know it's the calm before the storm. Verse 7 tells us, You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these His doings? In other words, who are you to tell God what He can and cannot say? Who are you to restrict God? You're the one that's drooling. Do not my words do good to Him who walks uprightly? And boy, I hope we would answer yes. Have you not found God's Word to be a treasure in your own life? Hasn't the Word of God done you good? It has certainly done me good. I hope we would all answer, Amen. God's Word does do good to those who take it seriously and who obey it. Verse 8, Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. There's an expression from the old Pogo comic strip. We have met the enemy and he is us. This is what Micah is saying about the Jews in Jerusalem. We have become our own worst enemies. He says, you pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men returned from war. Now, the law taught the people to be kind to the poor. Often, all a man had to keep himself warm at night was his coat. And that's why Exodus chapter 22 verse 26 said that if you took a man's coat as collateral, You were to make sure you gave it back to him by nightfall. But instead, the rich people in Jerusalem were stripping the poor of their garments as a conqueror would strip his captives. 
The rich were supposed to treat the poor as if they were brothers and befriend them. Instead, the rich had become the enemy of the poor. Reminds me of the man who was going door to door through the neighborhood collecting money for a needy family. The father had lost his job. The wife was sick. Kids had no clothes. Family had no money for food. They were several months behind on their rent. At one house, this fellow was asked, he says, well, you need to tell me, who are you? To which he replied, well, I'm the needy family's landlord. Anyway, I thought that was pretty funny, but apparently you didn't. I suppose he was trying to befriend the poor. That's what the rich are supposed to do. Verse 9, the women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children you have taken away my glory forever. In other words, these land grabbers were ruthless. They were tossing widows and children out on the street. Reminds me of an article that appeared in an Austin, Texas newspaper. It reads, Landlord John Mattingly, 26, in October, served an eviction notice on his grandmother, Dorothy Webb, 85, for non-payment of rent. In court, she commented, I guess I'm just not dying fast enough for it. How low can you go? I mean, do you really want to evict your grandma of all people? I mean, it sounds like the greedy landlords in Micah's day. God says to them, arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. Since they were quick to put poor people out on the street, God God is going to evict these people from the land that he had promised them. Samaria was sacked by Assyria in 722 B.C. And Jerusalem will be conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. God was true to his word. Judah will come home one day and find all its stuff out in the street. Their place of rest will be anything but. And then he says, if a man shall walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. In other words, the real slobberer is the false prophet who tells you what you want to hear. He's the one who encourages you to indulge in your lusts and your appetites. Just drink your wine. God doesn't care about the life you live. This is real slobber. The lie that you can just do as you please. That holiness doesn't matter. This is real spiritual drool. Always remember, just saying it so doesn't make it so. Because beware of the slobber spoken by some preachers. And then realize each of Micah's three sermons here have a similar structure. They all begin with the word hear. That's followed by the condemnation of their sin, which is followed by God's judgment or devastation, which is then followed by an affirmation of God's love and of His future restoration. So here's how Micah's sermons flow. You'll see it in all three. Condemnation, devastation, but then comes God's affirmation and ultimately His restoration. And this means chapter 2 ends on a high note. For even though the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have fallen, 
Verse 12 predicts that God will reassemble them in the future. As a shepherd gathers his lost sheep, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Notice the phrase, the fold. In Hebrew, it's actually the name Basra. Of which its leading city is the rock fortress of Petra. And according to Isaiah 63, it's at Basra that Jesus will return and slay the armies of the Antichrist and bring back the exiles to Jerusalem. I'm excited about visiting Petra for the first time this February. So God is going to bring the exiles up from Basra, from Petra. He's talking about the last days. In, in the latter part of the great tribulation, when Jesus returns, he's going to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem, and they're going to be uh, in one fold. And then the chapter closes. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. What a lovely verse. And, and I love... The name that Micah gives to God here. The one who breaks open. That would be a great way to address God in your prayer tonight. Lord, you are the one who breaks open. Try to limit God. Try to restrict Him. Try to tell God what He can and can't do. Try to stuff God in a box and watch Him break it open. He is the one who breaks open. Perhaps you feel boxed in tonight. You feel trapped. Maybe by some foolish choices that you've made. or Maybe by some circumstances beyond your control. Here's good news for you. There is one who breaks open and he lives inside of you. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. You can trust him to work a breakthrough in your life. Jesus shatters chains. He sets people free. He reassembles our lives. His people will go in and out of the gates freely. And notice the Lord will be at their head. King Jesus will reign. He'll be at their head. The king will pass before them. We'll be ruled by Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of a day yet future for Israel. But it is a picture of today in the heart of every believer who trusts in Jesus and submits to him. Well, Micah chapter 3 begins a new sermon. Our thoughts now are on Messiah's kingdom. Our minds are soaring with this thought. When suddenly they come crashing back to earth. And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? We've been thinking about Messiah's reign. The one who breaks open. But that's not who's ruling right now. You know that. I know that. Today, wicked men occupy positions of power. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, Solomon also bemoaned the fact that wicked men were in posts of authority. He said, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. Have you ever said that? There's an old saying, right forever on the scaffold, Wrong forever on the throne. 
seems like the good guys get punished and the bad guys have their way. That is until King Jesus returns. He'll set things right. Justice will reign. In the meantime, this sinful world is going to suffer under corrupt leadership. Every year in Cumbria, England, they host an event known as the World's Biggest Liar Competition. Have you ever heard of this? It's the World's Biggest Liar Competition. Competitors from all over the globe, they get five minutes to tell the tallest tale they can dream up. Props and scripts are not allowed. And there's one other rule. Politicians and lawyers are barred from the competition. (laughs) And you can imagine why. The organizers say that politicians are too skilled at telling lies. They're considered professional liars. It's an unfair advantage. Micah continues describing the wicked rulers of his day. Verse 2. He says, you who hate good and love evil. Oh my. God's desire for us is to love good and hate evil. The rulers of Micah's day had it all backwards. These wicked men also, like leaders who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Perhaps for the leaders of Judah, this is metaphorical language. But for what was coming, this was literally true. This was a description of the wartime tactics of the Assyrian army. This was how they tortured their defeated foes. They would mutilate and fillet their victims, literally skin them alive. The Assyrians were bloodthirsty and ruthless and vicious. And the wicked predatory rulers of Jerusalem and Samaria were about to fall into their very hands. Be careful how you treat people. Because in the end, you may receive the same treatment. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will hide, even hide His face from them at that time. Because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray. Who chant peace while they chew with their teeth. But who prepare war against Him who puts nothing into their mouths. False prophets, they were predicting peace while the enemy was preparing for war. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. In other words, these false prophets that are coming, they don't have a clue. There'll be no vision from heaven in this time. Consider those ominous words. The sun shall go down on the prophets. There'll be no help for them from heaven. The sun will go down on the prophets. Verse 7, So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Remember, when God brings judgment, the last thing He does is He removes His prophetic voice. Here, when judgment comes, they'll cry out for God, but He won't answer. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might 
to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Here was the difference between Micah and the false prophets of his day. Micah was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God had filled his sails. The Spirit of God was moving him against the current of corruption. God's Spirit had made him bold and brave. God had given him fortitude to walk in purity and to fight, to stand against the devil and the evil around him. You know, some Christians have the idea that the filling of the Holy Spirit is all about making them happy. Oh, and I know the Holy Spirit wants to make you happy, but more important, He wants to make you holy. The primary person purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is boldness, not just goosebumps. God filled the prophet Micah with the power of His Spirit in order for him to stand against the sins of Israel. And this is why you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's His power that you need to resist temptation and take a stand against the evil around you. Now hear this. Sounds like a command on a naval vessel. Now hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Everyone is playing the price is right. They're all in it for the money. The government officials, the priests, their prophets, they're all out for a buck. That's all they care about. The Jews had the best politicians money could buy. And the religious establishment was just as corrupt. In the court, you could buy a favorable verdict with a bribe. And at church, you could pay for a sermon that would tickle your ears. The leaders, they could be bought. Reminds me of the two beggars. They were sitting in a park in Dublin, Ireland. One man was holding a cross, while the other man was holding a Star of David. Well, everyone was walking up to the man with the cross and was putting money in his cup. Nobody was bothering to give anything to the guy holding the Star of David. Well, finally, an Irishman, he walks over and he says to the Jewish beggar, he says, the guy with the Star of David, he says, look, fella. Ireland's a Christian country. You're not going to get much money holding a Jewish emblem. The man with the Star of David, he turns to the guy with the cross and he says, Moisha, check this out. A Gentile's trying to tell us how to do business. I'm trying hard tonight, I'll tell you that. The point being, the Jews in Micah's day were just as corrupt and greedy. It was riches, not righteousness, that motivated the rulers and the priests and the prophets. You've heard the expression, every man has his price. I hope not. I hope not. There are some things that cost more than money. Peace of mind, integrity, and a good reputation. I hope not. If you're being tempted to sell out, think twice. Are you really that cheap 
that you'd put temporal gain ahead of eternal reward? With God's help, we all can be men and women of honesty and of a trustworthy character. And then verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. The greedy in Micah's day had been lulled into a false sense of security. They thought because they were God's chosen, that they had the name Israel, or Prince of God. They were immune from God's judgment. Micah says Judah is in for a rude awakening. Israel is in for a rude awakening. Just because God worked in your life in times past doesn't mean that your future is secure. As we learned in Ezekiel 18, it's what's current that counts. A faith that saves is an active faith. It's an up-to-date faith. Well, chapter 3, it has an interesting closing. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now, follow with me. History tells us that the Jerusalem of Micah's day heard the prophet's warning and repented of their sin. For when the Assyrian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, do you remember what King Hezekiah did? He got on his knees, on his face before God. He repented of his sin, and he cried out to God for deliverance. And you remember how God responded. In one night, God sent an angel of the Lord who slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians and saved his people Judah. The angel delivered the people in one night. Yet this verse, Micah 3, verse 12, plays an interesting role. For a hundred years later, this is the verse that gets quoted by the religious leaders who wanted to save the prophet Jeremiah. A hundred years, fast forward a hundred years. And the prophet Jeremiah is on trial there in Jerusalem. He's standing before the religious establishment. There are Jews there who want his head. But in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18, you can write it down and look it up later. Several of the Jews, the leading Jews, they stand up for the prophet Jeremiah. And guess what? They compare Jeremiah to Micah. And this is what they say in Jeremiah 26. Micah of Morisheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, and look at what they quote, chapter 3, verse 12. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. The princes supporting Jeremiah admit that Micah's words, they were fiery, they were incendiary. But the king didn't kill him. Hezekiah listened to him and repented of his sin. And if Hezekiah could do that, then the Jews of Jeremiah's day could listen to him and could repent of their sin. You know, it's interesting that what happened to Micah was what helped save Jeremiah's life. Because the people said yes, and they spared Jeremiah. Unfortunately, in the end, 
the later Jews rejected God's truth through Jeremiah. And what the leaders didn't realize is that Micah's prophecy was still in force. It wasn't just for his day. It was for their day as well. And thus, the judgment that Hezekiah escaped came upon the Jews in Jeremiah's day. The Jews in his day ended up tasting the full brunt of what Micah had predicted. And in 586 B.C., at the hands of the Babylonian army, Zion was plowed under like a field. And Jerusalem was turned into a heap of ruins, just as Micah had predicted. The judgments of Micah were ultimately fulfilled. As it turns out, the prophet Micah wasn't drooling after all. 